And we're live. Hello and welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the forthcoming novel, Atomic Anna. And I am so excited. I'm like jumping out of my seat over here to talk today to Gwen Kirby. She is the author of this amazing debut collection. For those of you that can see this cover, oh my God, Shit Cassandra Saw. These are a collection of short stories and I could not put them down. They were so good. Um, and when I was thinking about how we were going to talk about this today, um, I think we're going to do this interview a little bit differently because I think we need to start off after I do the bio, after we introduce you to Gwen, of course, um, with talking about Cassandra herself. So Gwen, I'm going to tee mm. that up. Let's talk about Cassandra. Um, but first, I'm going to introduce you formally. So Gwen E. Kirby is a native San Diegan and graduate of Carleton College. She has an MFA from Johns Hopkins University and a PhD from the University of Cincinnati. She's super smart and educated. Her <laughs> stories appear in One Story, Tin House, Guernica, Mississippi Review, Ninth Letter, Smoke Long Quarterly, and elsewhere. Currently, she's the Associate Director of Programs and Finance for the Sewanee Writers Conference at the University of the South, where she also teaches creative writing. It's a lot there. A lot, a lot, a lot. Gwen, thanks so much for joining to me, joining me today. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, thanks so, so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Hooray. So tell me, can we start off by talking about Cassandra? Who is Cassandra? Yeah, uh, well, so Cassandra is, um, it's from the title story, which is called Chick Cassandra Saw, that she didn't tell the Trojans, because at that point, fuck them anyway. And so she was a, a woman who lived in, you know, ancient Troy when it was, you know, under siege, etc. And she had the power to, to see the future. She knew what was, was coming. She told the Trojans what was coming. And they were like, nah, we're not going to listen to you, because uh, that was her curse. And it felt, um, felt like a very apt way to get the book started. Yeah. But it was her curse. Also, I mean, it was wrapped up in, um, you know, uh, threats of rape and her being raped when she refused right, to um, reciprocate with the gods and stuff. And um, this whole collection is a very a strong feminist collection, which was what I loved so much about it. Right. And this um, sort of overtone of Cassandra as being used as an insult is woven throughout the book. Right. I think commonly we use it as an insult when, in fact, she was a victim in many ways. So um, am I Am I right <laughs> in thinking about this? Yeah. Oh, I think so for sure. I mean, I think that sort of the, like for me, when I was writing that story, I, I wasn't trying to think in this wider lens. I was just thinking about Cassandra. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm writing a story about a woman who is saying something that is true and is not being listened to. Like, we don't need to go back to, you know, ancient Troy to find that happening. That is happening today. And so I really hope that that resonates through a lot of these stories where women are speaking up, they're they're being like, look, this is in your face. This is what's happening. And it's kind of, you know, it's your choice whether you want to listen to them or not. Yeah, I love it. But also because, um, so I have to ask, are you a Greek scholar? Have you studied Greek or Latin or no? Okay. So um, one of my favorite things is a lot of the new translations of the Need, right? And this is the poetry there is that women were called tra in traditional translations slaves, but actually mm. in more modern translations, they are being translated now as forced prostitutes, right? Forced into oh. prostitution. And I just saw that throughout the book of, you know, this is what people think women are doing or should look like or be thinking. And in fact, you are giving us what's really happening sort of behind the scenes. That's how I was reading it. And 
I just thought it was beautiful and that's why I couldn't put it down. So um, I wanted to ask, why did Cassandra speak to you? How did she come to you? I was, I think I was listening to a, a reading um, where there was a, a, a male poet was reading this poem and Cassandra appeared in the poem, but she was like this like toss off. I mean, she, she barely got to be in this poem at all. And I just started thinking about Cassandra. And I think I also was in a mood, which the title seems to <laughs> indicate. Um, and this cover. Oh my the God. Cover, the cover's a whole mood unto itself. Um, but I really, you know, I, I started writing the story for myself. I was trying to imagine like, what would it be like to be a woman who could see the future, but not change it? That seemed like the scariest, hardest thing. And then I realized like, oh, well, it's a little bit like being a woman who walks through the world. Um, there's a lot that you know darn well that you cannot change. I mean, really being a person who walks through the world too. I do want to say, I think that that message can be felt by by men in the same way that it can by by women. For sure. But I mean, for me as a woman reading this, so much of this spoke to me. And I just want to read a couple of little excerpts to, um, you know, to give listeners and readers just a sense of, you know, what we're talking about here. So um, one of my favorite stories is early on in this collection, and it's called A Few Normal Things That Happen A Lot. Okay. So this is how it opens. This is the very first paragraph. A woman walks down the street and a man tells her to smile. Happens all the time, right? I mean, to me, right? Yes, Smile, honey, right? Mm. And then if you don't smile, what's wrong, bitch? I feel like that has happened to me more times than I can count. Um, but you write, when she smiles, she reveals a mouthful of fangs. She bites off the man's hand, cracks the bones, and spits them out, and accidentally swallows his wedding ring, which gives her indigestion. Bam! That's the opening to the story. That is so brilliant because you took this common moment that so many women, right, have experienced and then you just wrapped it up into and you gave her the power to respond, right? I just love that. Can you talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started this story on the day of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, and I was, as many of us were, I was just really angry and really yeah. upset. And I didn't really know what to do with with that, with that anger. And I just sort of started writing these little like paragraphs that were just basically like, man was an asshole. So a woman like ate him, you know, and it just, it was, it was cathartic really in that moment. And I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is going to turn into some big finished story. It's going to go in my book. But as I was writing it and these scenes kind of started to get more complicated and the characters started to reappear, it for me became this real like meditation on both the real pleasure of imagining just being able to defend yourself, you know, to just like, just go out into the world and feel so strong. Um, but also just how like sad it is that one would need to imagine that, you know, like I don't want to imagine I mean, the women in this story, like they turn into radioactive cockroaches and like explode jars of salsa and they bite man men's hands off. And none you of which that right. Radioactive cockroaches. Yes. I don't know, honestly, how that came into that just popped out of my brain onto the page. And I was like, I guess that's what we're doing today. Um, but yeah, it was a really cathartic story to write. But it also made me think really hard about like, what is the price that we pay as women having to enjoy imagining violence? Um Wow, that is really, I mean, that is a <laughs> that is quite a question. I mean, because you do think, right? I know from my personal experience, there have been many times. So for example, the next paragraph of this story, a woman waits for the bus and a man stands too close to her. 
he puts his hand on her ass with no idea that she is the first, right? And then you go on with the yeah. first successful subject of a top secret science experiment. She turns and points her laser eyes at him and transforms him into bus fare, $2.75 in cool coins. But that start, that setup, right? A woman waits for the bus and a man stands too close. He puts his hand on her ass. Like that is a very scary moment that, you know, many women have experienced and you put it in there and then you give us the power in the very next sentence. But that, but that weight of the violence that imagining it, that you're talking about, that is, it is terrifying and also very sad that that it's in there, you know? Yeah. And I think pretty much everything that's happened to these women in the store, I mean, this is all personal experience. You know, I've been stalked around a grocery store by a man who wouldn't leave me alone. I've been harassed at a bus stop. I've been told to smile. I've been followed on a run, you know, all of those things. Like my imagination was not having to stretch to come up with those scenarios. They really just, they poured out of me because I think we've all experienced them. I'm for those of you listening to the podcast, I'm sitting here nodding and nodding and <laughs> nodding, right? Because all of these things have happened to me too. And it's such a universal experience. It's terrifying and sad all at the same time. But I'm so glad that you brought it out here in fiction and that now we have a chance to talk about it, right? Yeah. About how, how it happens and maybe how we can find ways around it without being cockroaches, radioactive cockroaches. I guess. <laughs> Um, and of course, uh, these stories really reminded me of some of my favorites. I need to give a shout out, right, to Rebecca Traster, Naomi Alderman, um, Lainey Zumas, right, who've been writing these amazing books also facing these. And I just think you're in this tradition. And I was saying I would love to go to dinner with all of you guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. And that would be an amazing dinner. <laughs> At the same time, um, I want to fast forward a little bit in the book. Um, for those of you that have a copy on page 102. Uh, eight, we talk about, um, you also talk about uh, women's relationships with one another. Um, mm -hmm. And in one of my favorite paragraphs, um, you describe how one woman is angry because another woman, um, her boyfriend has slept with another woman. And she says, uh, it was easier to hurt another girl than admit she was hurt herself because she sent out naked pictures of that woman who had slept with a boyfriend instead of channeling all of her anger at the boyfriend, right? She put it on mm -hmm. the other woman instead. It would be admitting that she didn't deserve to retaliate. And I just thought those two sentences were so powerful and this woman-woman dynamic, right, as opposed to going after the man. Can you talk about that and how you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, in that story, it really is all a story about the relationship between these teenage girls and kind of the the damage that they do to each other um, because they don't really have like the power to do damage to the forces in their lives that are legitimately hurting them. And so at least in that one little one little section, it's so much easier for her to lash out at another woman to slut shame another woman. She knows what the reaction of the world is going to be to that. Whereas to to push against this this boyfriend who's hurt her, it's his fault. You know, mm -hmm. that is that is scary for her. That has stakes for her. That is a fight that she doesn't know she will win, and so she doesn't engage in that fight at all. And I mean, I think you know, women, we do a lot of damage to each other. Um, and I, I wanted to, I, I really thought that was important in the book that it was not just like all the women get along really great and they all agree that like we're, you know, it's the sisterhood and it's, you know, whereas those relationships are so complicated and so baked into the patriarchy. I mean, we've internalized all that same shit that men have. Yeah. I mean, you write it right beautifully. It would be admitting that she didn't deserve to retaliate if she went after the man. 
it was easier and safer to go after another woman, right? The slut shaming. I mean, mm -hmm. it was in those two sentences, I was just like, yes, yes, I have it underlined and starred. Um, and it's a theme you have in a couple of the stories too, where this one woman is having an affair and she realizes that she just enjoys the sex, right? The pleasure. And yet in her head, she has a ghost telling her whore, whore, whore all the time, right? Whereas, and I kept thinking, but if she were a man, would she be thinking she was a whore or like a player, right? Well, yeah, for sure. And I, I love that ghost. He's a he's an Enlightenment era preacher who who haunts this house that that she lives in. And I feel like he serves this wonderful role in the story, really, because he can be society's judgment, the judgment of the town, and it kind of leaves her free to, I think, revel a little bit in the kind of bad choices complicated choices that she's making to have this affair and kind of blow up her own life in part just because she's discovered that she can just like sex for the sake of sex and she's really bummed out that she figured that out when she was 42 instead of say 22 and she had a little bit more more options but she still hears him right saying whore 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 even oh, though yeah. she's enjoying the sex yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess this is so silly. And maybe I'm just I'm very literal minded in my thinking about that story. But like, that ghost is real in that story. Like that is he is actually there. He is actually talking to her. And yeah, it is her choice at different moments in the story, how much she chooses to kind of engage with that ghost, right? Engage with that voice that's calling her a whore and how much to tell that ghost to you know, she throws her wine through the ghost and is like, you know, ruins her own chair. But she has her moments of defiance against the ghost. Yeah. But this is how beautiful your writing is, because if I'm remembering properly, she ruins a white chair, right? Yes. White, pure chair. You didn't make it purple, right? Or like, pig, you made it white purity. I mean, I felt like every word was so well chosen and placed in this story. And then she tried to clean it up. <laughs> and right. And of course, it was stained. Yeah, exactly. And that word stain has so much mm -hmm. resonance in that story, like to be a stained woman or a used woman, to be a whore. Um, I mean, those questions, as you pointed out rightly, like those questions emerge first in the Cassandra story. And I think they they come up in, I mean, gosh, in, in almost all the rest of them. It's a, it's a pretty major theme in the book. This is why I loved it so much is because on the surface, we're talking about ghosts and radioactive cockroaches, right? And this ridiculousness. And yet you're really touching on very serious subjects, right? These big loaded words, right? Stained, whore, slut shaming, right? I mean, it's all in there and you're choosing your words so carefully. There's an economy to every sentence. And I just thought it was brilliant. So um, thank you. <laughs> thank you for putting him there. Um, I also wanted to say you also touch on mother-daughter relationships. Um, and this was one of my favorite um, endings. So you have in the story called Mary Reed is a cross-dressing pirate. Okay. And you end it with, um, I do not know how Annie dies. As for me, it's a bloody, violent death. And I fight bravely to the last. Yet when the coroner notes the cause of death, he writes childbirth instead of the truth that I died in a battle against a daughter even stronger than myself impatient to be free. Oh my God. I just get the chills reading that. Um, please tell me about that paragraph and how you wrote that. Oh gosh. Well, I, so one, I just think uh, childbirth is insane and bananas and we women should get way more credit for going through that. Um, but I, I'm very lucky to be very close to my sister and I held her leg when she gave birth, um, of almost four years ago now. And I, 
I couldn't believe how like just raw and bloody and animal that was um, and how profound it was to see new life coming into the world, but also how utterly seeped in violence that was. And so one, I wanted to really capture that. So Mary Reed is indeed a cross-dressing pirate who has seen all this battle and stuff. Um, but, you know, childbirth is as bloody and violent as those battles that she was in. Um, but I sort of wanted to pair that with um, the hope, I think, that that new life brings and, and particularly the hope that bringing this this new daughter into the world who, you know, maybe a slightly better world than the world that the mother is leaving. Um, and just that, I don't know, that Mary Reed was a cross-dressing pirate and my gosh, her daughter is going to be an even stronger fighter than she was just made me feel, I guess, made me feel hope and joy, uh, even as I wrote that poor character's bloody death. I love that. I hadn't thought about that. Um, the hope and joy in it, because also there is this, you know, I think you also bring up the question of the battle between mother and daughter, right? Mm -hmm. And and oh, sometimes, sometimes there is the question of who is stronger and where well, you want it to be. It's just so wild. I mean, I feel silly that I didn't know this for a long time, but like I had no idea that the wonderful feminist icon, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft died giving birth to the woman who was going to become the wonderful feminist icon writer Mary Shelley yes and just this way in which yeah. sort of our I don't know in which our lives kind of birth these other lives metaphorically and for women really really physically like not metaphorically whatsoever right right just it's just beautiful um Okay, so I told you I have so many questions. So I want to take you to another one of my favorite. I feel like every two minutes, I'm like, and another one of my favorite sentences. But that's because I have so many of them. Um, okay, so we're going to go back to here preached his last. Um, and because the main character there, I can't remember her name. Did you have does she have a name? Oh gosh, you're asking the wrong person for my character's okay. names. I, I I'm she, terrible. I can't. She must name. have a name, but I don't. If she does, I anyway, do not remember it. I don't think it's obvious if if she is in here. Um, but you have this scene. So the main character, she's in loving sex, she's enjoying sex, as we talked about as a 42-year-old and having this affair, and the ghost George is sort of watching on the side. But it, she is also she teaches at a school and she's a varsity soccer coach. Um, and I want to talk about this sentence here or this one paragraph for anyone who has the book on them. It's on page 56 um, because I also get to coach girls basketball. And I just felt like this really rang so true to me. Um, so you wrote the varsity soccer team is the opposite of my daughter. They seem to do nothing but hesitate. You're never going to win a header by asking permission, I tell them. But they refuse to attack the ball. They'd rather lose than look like they're trying to win. It's a feeling I remember, though, as a teenager. I just feel like so many girls hold back that way. That is, I see it all the time in the girls that I coach. They're embarrassed to be out in front and as good as they are. Please talk to me and tell me how you came to this realization and what it's doing in the story. Well, it comes, I mean, I guess as, as you have a personal connection to that too, it, it comes very much for me from being a girl athlete. Um, you know, growing up, I played a ton of, of team sports and there, there really did start to like become this divide almost among the girls from like those who would continue to, to play hard and want it and kind of be okay with, with showing that they wanted it. And those girls who sort of became too cool or, you know, to, to show that they cared. And it was, 
it was just so interesting because I feel like on the one hand, playing sports with other women was like an incredibly meaningful and empowering experience for me growing up. It, it, it meant a lot to me, but also sometimes feeling embarrassed to be the one who was like sweaty and covered in grass stains and and wanting it and wanting it overtly. And I think as women, we're often, I don't know, I, I don't think we're not supposed to want too much or be too aggressive. Um, and, you know, yeah. what's more aggressive than like elbowing another woman out of the way so you can get at the field hockey ball, which I personally yes. did uh, quite often. But it, yes, yeah. Yes, I love that. So I also coached uh, field hockey. Oh, and, I love right? field hockey. Love it. Love it. And I spent so many practices teaching the girls just shoot, right? Like yep. shoot, yep. shoot, don't pass, shoot, don't pass. shoot, right? be selfish. Yes, and I think go being for selfish it. is a huge theme in this collection. And like yes. the import, like that selfishness can be a really positive thing that you have to go for what you want. And yeah, in, in sports, that is just laid so naked. Yeah. You're just like, take the ball, shoot the ball, go for the header, take what you want. Yeah. Well, I mean, this story here preached his last, take it if you want the pleasure of sex, right? Take it. And I feel like so many of the women in here, you are pushing them to do that, just like the girls on the sports field. And I think that's why I, I found so much of it so inspiring. Just like, thank you. Yes. It's actually I, been really cool talking to women about this collection, how many have noticed sports in this book. And it wasn't something that I had like, I don't know, consciously thought all that much about. And I have had a number of women be like, I played soccer or like I played softball. This is like what it was like for me. And I, I love connecting with other women about sport because I think we don't yes. get to do that all that often. Yeah. And it is really the only place where we can say really openly, like, I want it, right? Yeah. I want to win. And it's yeah, okay. exactly. And the, you yeah, know? And it's okay. Yeah. And for the girls that are afraid to say it, I feel like it's great for women like you, right, to write in this book, for us to coach to say it's a good thing to want it. Get yeah. out there and win. It's good. Yeah. I just loved it. Um, okay. So this is one thing I wanted to ask you. So these stories are distinct and we've talked a little bit about ways in which they are united, right, through this theme of Cassandra. But I wanted to ask you, how do you think they're united? How would you describe this to a reader? That's a great question. And one that I worried a ton about when I was trying to put this book together, you know, like, is this a collection versus just like a lot of weird fragments from my strange mind? Um, and I, I think that they are, I think they're very clearly united thematically, kind of, as you say, like the, the theme of like women and feminism. And I think the body is a really important theme in this book. Um, all of these women are doing things that are really physical, whether that's sex or sports or ripping out their bathroom or whatever it is. I think like physicality and violence are really central to this story. I, I do think, I hope something that unites the collection is humor and also hope as well. I mean, I think that these are, you know, they're heavy subjects to talk about when you come at them straight, but I feel like with like a little Emily Dickinson telling it slant, um, there's there's a lot of hope and 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 joy for me at least in the writing of these stories that says like yes these are not maybe we haven't been able to claim our bodies in the way that we want to or we haven't been able to claim our ambition or our lust or whatever it is but that doesn't mean that we still can't um so I, yeah. 
I love that. Okay, so I have like a million other questions about the book, but I need to switch gears. I have like a note to myself, make sure you ask about the craft of writing because my listeners love to hear about this. So we're gonna switch just a little bit. And if you could uh, tell me a little bit about how this collection came together, sort of how long it took and you know how you wrote this and how they all came into one collection. It took a ridiculously long time. Uh, Thank think, you for admitting that. Thank yeah, you. Okay. A ridiculously long time. Uh, the very first or the oldest story in this collection is Disneyland of Mexico. And I, I believe I wrote that when I was 27. I am 36 now. So the collection took about seven or eight years to write. Um, and, you know, it was really, it was a long journey, I think, in part because I was learning how to write as I wrote the collection. And so there was just a lot of stories that that didn't work. Um, but it was also a really central to it was like learning what it was I wanted to write about. Like maybe I could write a good story about X, Y, and Z, but it wasn't a story that belonged in this book. And so figuring that out, also giving myself permission to include Flash in this collection was a really big step for me in the structuring of it. Because I was like, Flash doesn't go in ser serious. You can't, this is a podcast. You can't see me making quotation marks around the word serious, but <laughs> Flash doesn't go in serious books. Serious books have seven stories and they're all 10,000 words long. Um, but I started doing this project where I was writing about historical women and I just realized like, these are all the same exact themes that I'm working on in my collection. This is a really arbitrary distinction that I'm making and it's making the book weaker and not stronger. So I do feel like learning to be like, this is what I want to do and this is what I want to say and this is what those stories are going to look like. It took like seven or eight years to, to get there. Amazing. Because I think it's easy for all of us to look at this beautiful polished collection and be like, oh, she probably wrote it in a year, right? <laughs> Boy, no, I did not. No, no, no. So were any of these stories going to blow up into a longer novel? Absolutely not. No. But um, I will say that the process of writing this book has definitely taught me like where where a novel might come from, right? Like there are a, a number of historical ladies sitting in my fold my drafts folder who were too big for the the story that I wanted to tell about them was too big for the size of the stories that I was writing. And so I do feel like I've I've opened avenues to myself through writing this that that yeah, that I hope will turn into a novel, or certainly my agent and publisher hope will turn into a novel. I love that. So we have one listener who's asking how many stories are in the collection? Do you know off the top of your head? Oh gosh, uh, I it's, it's a ridiculous number. I want to say like it's a lot because some 20 maybe, some are short but some, some are, are very long, short. So. Yeah. The length varies wildly from yeah. about 500 words to, I think the longest one is close to 7,000. Wow. So um, what was the hardest part about getting this book published? Oh, wow. Um, I guess two things in the abstract, the hardest part was just continuing to write when being done with it was so clearly years away, I think. That is is difficult. That's difficult to do, to maintain your ridiculous belief that something is going to come of it. Um, the I'm other... so glad you're so honest about that, because I feel <laughs> like it's very easy as a writer, right? You look down the, the barrel of time and you're like, I've got another three years till this is going to see any light of day. Yeah, it's really intimidating. And, you know, that feeling doesn't go away. You know, I, I mean, like I'm starting a new book now and I have no idea if that will work. Right. Like I could very well spend three years working on something that falls absolutely flat, happens to writers constantly. So that that terror never goes away. Um, in terms of the hardest part of getting it 
published, I think it was just really, you know, I had an agent who really believed in me. So I was very, very lucky. Um, and she's the best. And she was like, yeah, we're going to sell it. And it's all going to be feminism. So I was like, all right, Sarah, like, I, I believe in you. Let's do it. But finding a publishing house that, you know, didn't want to change anything about the book that, you know, was fine calling it shit Cassandra saw and having it be what it is. Um, I just got really lucky that there was an editor who wanted it. I mean, it got rejected a lot by editors, you know, I mean, I feel like that's always really important to note, like a book seems inevitable when it's out in the world, but like, it's this tiniest margins that get you over, over the top. And one editor said yes. And I grabbed it like a lifeline. <laughs> so amazing. I wanted to ask you, was there, what was the conversation like over the title? I mean, shit, Cassandra saw that's pretty, right? Pretty bold. I was shocked in that there was no conversation about it. I thought Amazing. they were going to like push back or whatever. And my, and maybe my editor, my editor may well have had that conversation behind the scenes when I was okay. not there, but with me, it was just like, yep, yeah, this is great. This is what we're going to call it. And I kept being like, really, we're not going to call it like stuff Cassandra style. <laughs> like, but no, they were on board. So I, I was very fortunate. That is amazing. So what kind of advice do you have for new writers? Oh man, um, the most boring advice is write. You just, you have to write, which is terrible. I've, I come back to that every day. I'm like, damn, I still have to do that. Um, but much more than that, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to be weird in your writing and to be strange. And also don't be afraid to write a story and leave it behind and start a new one. I see a lot of my my students will write a story and they'll be like, well, now I need to make this story perfect. Instead of taking the lessons that they learned from writing it and throwing those into the next story and then the story after that and the story after that, because it's it's a real process of learning and don't feel discouraged if you write a story that you're like, well, that didn't work. I like wrote a story that didn't work this weekend. That never ends, <laughs> but you just have to keep starting that new one. Um, and yeah, that's what I would say. I love that. So do you have a big pile of stories in your desk drawer that will never see the light of day? I mean, I have books, books worth, Rachel. I have <laughs> so many stories that just either were never going to be good, or I am just not yet a good enough writer to make them work. And I hope I will be someday. I know you will be. You're amazing. And I absolutely love this. Gwen, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely adore the book. I would love to meet you in real life one day. May I you sell too. many, many copies. <laughs> thank you. This was such a pleasure. Thank you.